This is WQA Radio, a podcast from the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Three, two, one. And hello, I'm your host, Wes Bleed. We hope that by the end of it, we can have only a handful of those as a representative of uh, the PFAS that we can monitor. One, in order to see whether we are removing all of the PFAS or all of the range of PFAS, and also uh, how effective our adsorbents are against those PFAS. That's Dr. Majid Mosani with the University of British Columbia talking about his new research on PFAS for the Water Quality Research Foundation. And welcome to WQA Radio, the weekly podcast of the Water Quality Association, promoting better water quality around the world. This is episode number 336. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a show. That's the magic of podcasting. And be sure to share the podcast with someone on your team or a friend or colleague. We are publishing this September 13th of 2023. You can find us at our home website, wqa.org. Also on social media such as LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and X. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on some brand new research being conducted on PFAS from the Water Quality Research Foundation, WQRF. Dr. Majid Mosini joins us to talk about the research into whether a PFAS surrogate might be able to be found and identified to gauge the effectiveness of PFAS technologies against the thousands of PFAS compounds that are out there in the environment. He'll get into the goals of the project and the technologies and what it can all mean for long-term disposal of PFAS. Later, we'll have our Motivational Minute and WQA tip. And now on to WQRF PFAS Research on WQA Radio. And we are joined by Majid Mosini, Scientific Director at Rizal Center for Mobilizing Innovation at the University of British Columbia. And we are going to talk about research with the Water Quality Research Foundation, one of the projects going on there. So, Majid, thanks for joining us on WQA Radio. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the uh, role you play at the University of British Columbia, scientific director and uh, the mobilizing, uh, the center, I should say, the Center for Mobilizing Innovation. What's, uh, what's that all about? Yeah, um, I am uh, a professor here at the um, University of British Columbia, and my role here is um, to uh, do both teaching and also research, as you pointed out, my research is around uh, water quality and treatment, particularly focusing on uh, drinking water quality. Um, and uh, I am also the scientific director of Rezo Center for Mobilizing Innovation, which is a national uh, program uh, funded by uh, Government of Canada and, and a range of uh, partner organizations from industry to some NGOs and also uh, other government agencies. And the focus of this program is really to uh, bring technologies and uh, innovation from uh, 
university labs um, and also uh, what might reside outside university labs into the communities uh, to develop those technologies, to implement them and address the, the water, uh, drinking water quality uh, in communities uh, outside the urban area. So the specific focus we have are around uh, more rural um, and remote communities that do not have resources to um, uh, have uh, high-end or advanced water treatment systems and are often relying on, um, in many cases, decentralized treatment system, meaning that at home, uh, whether it's a point of use or point of entry water treatment systems. And that's how it also very relevant to the mandate of uh, water quality associations, which are individual uh, treatment systems. What are you uh, focused on these days? Any particular application or treatment process? Well, there are two aspects that we focus on uh, in our research. One is around uh, ensuring that the drinking water is free of pathogens uh, or microbes and bacteria. And those are very key because uh, those are the primary threat to public health. Uh, the second focus is around uh, what we call emerging contaminants, micropollutants, uh, whether they are uh, pesticides uh, or um, cyanotoxins that come from algal blooms. Uh, and uh, in this case, that is relevant to the Water Quality Research Foundation uh, research is uh, PFAS or per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Before we jump into that a little bit more, let me go back to something you said about the rural residents that you're primarily focused on. How many people in Canada would you say are in this decentralized situation? Well, in general, it's estimated that uh, roughly about 20% of the population uh, live outside the main uh, major urban areas. So we're talking about roughly uh, around uh, six to eight uh, million people. Now, not all of them are uh, sort of connected or relying on decentralized treatment systems, uh, but a large portion of them, uh, they are. Many uh, cottages and cabins and, and basically um, sort of like a, a spread out communities. They rely on single wells and single treatment systems. But also on top of these, uh, so we get 20%, there are many in urban areas that rely on decentralized treatments, so whether they um, they have their own treatment systems at home on top of what uh, the city or utility delivers to them. Um, so I would say it's more than 20% of the population. All right, let's go back to the Water Quality Research Foundation, uh, which has has brought you on for a research project on PFAS. And I would love for you to get into that a little bit more and to uh, talk about, first of all, your interest in PFAS and how you got started on this project. Well, um, the story of PFAS, of course, is now on top of uh, everybody's mind, um, at least in North America, but also beyond North America. Uh, we, um, as part of uh, my uh, research, as I mentioned, we have interest in uh, what we call emerging contaminants and micropollutants. Um, so about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, we came to learn more about PFAS, uh, particularly around, uh, again, those communities that are on well water, 
but they may not have um, uh, good advanced treatment systems. So we started uh, to look into how we might be able to um, treat uh, for PFAS or treat the water for PFAS. Uh, started with uh, one student and gradually, of course, the scope increased. Now we have a large group of uh, students who are working in this area. So um, I have been looking at different technologies, uh, different possibilities, and how we might be able to address that. So uh, we've learned uh, more and more about PFAS in the past six, seven years. And uh, that's how the, the project with uh, WQRF started. And what will this scientific project, this research project, attempt to uncover? What are you look? What are you uh, hoping to learn? Well, if you look at the technologies that are available for uh, PFAS removal, uh, there are um, now uh, mostly uh, absorbing uh, technologies or uh, relying on absorption of PFAS from water. Uh, and those are the ones that are approved by the EPA. Uh, so EPA has approved uh, granular activated carbon, which is the common uh, absorbing media for many contaminants. And also there is another um, type of um, absorbent um, ion exchange uh, resins. Those are also to some extent approved by EPA. And they work quite well as well. They have their own limitations and there are some challenges with them. Um, so, uh, this is only to absorb um, the, the PFAS out of the water and uh, generate clean water. Now, if I want to delve into this uh, more, of course, once we remove PFAS from uh, adsorbent, uh, sorry, from water using these adsorbents, uh, we are not eliminating the problem. Certainly, we are removing the PFAS from water. The consumers can have clean water, but we are concentrating them uh, into uh, what we say absorbing media or these solid phases that need to be dealt later on. Now, as part of our research, we tackle that aspect as well, but this is uh, for now beyond the scope of this particular research with uh, Water Quality Research Foundation. So. To be more specific about what uh, we are going to do as part of this research is there are many types of adsorbents, uh, means many types of carbons out there. Uh, they come from different sources, from, for example, they come from wood or they could come or could originate from coconut uh, shells and so on. So one of the mandates or one of the objectives we have are we assess different types of carbon materials to see, uh, to determine the extent of their effectiveness against different types of PFAS. So that's one, basically evaluating different uh, type of carbon adsorbents. The second aspect, which is very important, is that when we talk about PFAS, we're not talking about one compound. We are, in fact, talking about thousands of compounds that are out there. Now, not all of them are of immediate concern uh, with respect to regulations, and not all of them are present in water at, in, at the levels that we can detect. So there are 
a number of PFAS uh, that are our targets, uh, usually a few dozens. So which one of them we should target? Because if we want to go after all of them, more so in terms of detection, it's going to be extremely costly for any manufacturer or any community for them to monitor for all those, let's say, few dozens of those PFAS, because the analytical parts at such low levels is going to be extremely expensive. So as part of our project, what we are aiming to is to determine which one of those PFAS we can use as surrogate or as representatives for the range of PFAS that we are talking about. So we hope that by the end of it, we can have only a handful of those as a representative of uh, the PFAS that we can monitor. One, in order to see whether we are removing all of the PFAS or all the range of PFAS, and also uh, how effective our adsorbents are against those PFAS. So for example, if I just go a little bit deep, deeper, if we have a range of PFAS that are, for example, negatively charged, just to simple, it's just those are uh, compounds that are basically within their molecules, they have um, a negative uh, charge. So they represent um, a group of PFAS. Now, can we identify from all of these that are negatively charged, one or two of them that can represent all the rest of those in here? And that's what we are hoping that as part of this program, we can identify which one of those can be representatives and whether removing them can assure us and the manufacturers and the homeowners and the communities that we are getting rid of all the rest of the PFAS. So in order to make the water safe, we just need to target those few of those. That sounds fascinating. Any idea how long this is likely to take? I can imagine right now many of our listeners who are saying, oh, this is fantastic, but we'd love to know right away. Well, yes, I mean, the, the, the answer to any of these questions cannot come soon enough, uh, but uh, certainly it's going to take some time. Uh, what we um, anticipate is that within um, around nine to 12 months, basically within the next uh, one year time frame, uh, we are able to have the, the answers to those um, and be able to present our reports to not only the Water Quality Research Foundation Board, but also the, the, the memberships. And so hopefully that can be can be used for uh, for their uh, sort of like more of a development of the products uh, and technologies, but also assessment of those technologies. As I mentioned, it's very important for um, the communities or homeowners to be able to know, uh, to be confident that if they are using a particular product, this product is um, is able to remove at least those uh, PFAS that are known to be toxic or harmful and also are regulated. I don't want to jump the gun here, but it does sound like this has some real value for the point of use and point of entry water treatment community, does it not? Absolutely. I think that's the intention for this particular research uh, is. Uh, to, to make sure that 
any point of entry or point of use device that is developed uh, can be um, tested and can uh, be evaluated for their efficiency against the range of uh, representative PFAS that might be uh, targeted. Um, now, as I mentioned, it's not going to address the entire PFAS issue uh, from uh, the planet because uh, most of these point of um, entry devices are absorbing uh, based or absorption based technologies, meaning that all we do is just to remove the PFAS from uh, water uh, to bring it into a solid phase. And that solid phase, of course, needs to be um, uh, taken care of in terms of whether it's a recycling or disposal or anything like that, uh, which we are, as part of um, my research, we are looking into that as well. But that's outside the scope of this particular research. Well, when you say that, do you think that there will be a technology down the road at some point that is more than just absorbing the PFAS compounds? It's, uh, I mean, definitely we need to have other complementary technologies to um, eliminate the PFAS issue. I mean, the real uh, solution at the end of the day will be to destroy them, meaning that to break the carbon-fluorine bond uh, so that we get rid of them altogether uh, or we eliminate them. Uh, but with absorption, that's not going to be achieved. So what we need to do is to use complementary technologies that we call destruction technologies to be able to uh, eliminate them or uh, defluorinate them. Now, the challenge is that we cannot use those destruction technologies in uh, a straight on drinking water, uh, basically taps or at the point of entry or for that matter at a central treatment facility because the concentration of the PFAS in water, in our drinking water supplies, are so low. We are talking about nanogram per liters uh, or parts per trillions, basically. Uh, so destruction technologies are not going to be uh, effective and or it's going, they are going to be extremely expensive. So what we do need to do is just first to absorb them uh, on uh, some kind of a media uh, and absorbing media do a great job. Now, the second part will be to take those and now have a concentrated either solid phase or we bring it back to liquid phase. So we will be dealing with high concentration of PFAS at much lower volume. Under that conditions, we can apply those destruction technologies that even though they may be very energy intensive, but at least we are dealing with a small volume. And this way we, we are able to um, remove the PFAS or eliminate them at much lower cost. Very interesting. And we're uh, very hopeful that your research is successful so that we can move to a new chapter of uh, uh, success in the battle against PFAS. In the remaining moments here, do you mind if I ask you one of those uh, typical uh, questions such as, you know, put your crystal ball out in front of you and kind of uh, gaze into the future for us and just uh, answer the question, what's ahead for the water treatment industry? 
well, <laughs> if I had crystal ball, I would be um, so like a, a much better uh, so like a, it would be a much better uh, situation to 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 help out our communities or our uh, our, our population. But um, I, I think there are two aspects: is that one is that we all need to be hopeful that by eliminating these contaminants from the source from the beginning. So in other words, by not using them, in the case of PFAS, uh, so basically eliminating their use uh, in our consumer products, we are not able to, uh, we won't be able, we won't be needing to talk about the removal from our water. So uh, hopefully that's our future direction, which means that we are not introducing those contaminants into the water in the first place. But I understand that given our lifestyle and our, um, our basically how we uh, we live and how we function in our society, that may not be all possible, especially with, um, let's say, climate change and everything that is happening, uh, we will have contaminants. Uh, so my hope is that uh, we will have technologies that are going to be efficient and can address multiple problems or multiple contaminants at once. So rather than dealing with individual contaminants uh, and using multiple technologies in order to take one of them off, we will have technologies that will tackle several of these contaminants at the same time. Very good. Well, let's leave it there. And uh, we so appreciate your joining us and so appreciate the the work that you're doing on behalf of the Water Quality Research Foundation. And we look forward to the results. Maybe we can catch up with you within a few months and get a status update on that. And if you don't mind, that'd be fantastic. Absolutely. We'd be happy to do so. And um, yeah, look forward to working on this project and delivering on what the, uh, what the intended objectives are. Yeah, Dr. Majid Mozani, Scientific Director for the Rousseau Center for Mobilizing Innovation at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And our Motivational Minute. I've been thinking about an often overlooked quality in successful people. We usually hear about such uh, traits as uh, leadership and courage and conviction and passion. Nothing wrong with those. But one that I'm not sure I hear as much about as we, we really should hear is resilience. It's the idea of getting knocked down, not just once, not just twice, but many, many times, and getting back up again each and every time. Resilience. We might get that momentary setback, that momentary disappointment, that momentary struggle, but we can still get back up, dust ourselves off, and continue to do our job. It also reminds us to keep going when there's so much that we can't control. Supply chain problems? Keep going. Inflation? Keep going. Recession? Keep going. So if you're dealing with adversity, if it feels like you just got knocked down, reach for that resilience so that you can get back up and keep going with the work that you know you're meant to do. 
WQA tip, we are now sharing these podcasts on YouTube. That's right, YouTube. Go on over to WQA's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Water Quality Association videos. And then look for the podcasts. You'll see the video of our podcast interviews right on your screen. And video, you know, offers another dimension, doesn't it, to... uh, to really our podcasts and uh, the, the guests that we present and can be another resource for you and your team. Perhaps you might want to show these videos at a meeting or perhaps part of your training or onboarding. I'm sure there are a lot of possibilities. WQA Podcasts now on YouTube. Thanks for listening to WQA Radio, a podcast of the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Remember, you can subscribe to WQA Radio on most popular podcast apps. Learn more about water at wqa.org and, of course, learn about WQA product certification, professional certification, and how you can become a member at wqa.org. This is Wes Bleed, so long from WQA Radio.